0: Come together right now. Everybody, come together, come together right
1: now. Everybody, come together. If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports Podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to sports and culture writer and Free Darko co-founder, cult fave Free Darko, Nathaniel Friedman, about his passion for record collecting, a conversation that was Built for Gareth Hughes even before they got into a tangent on Moby Dick. I kid you not.
2: Sorry, I missed it.
1: And and we will break down the hype and the hate for the new rap album from Dallas Cowboys receiver Cole Beasley. Which, look, in all fairness, is easily the second best rap album from an NFL athlete based in Texas to come out this (laughs) month. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the line this week, let's start also in Chicago. He is a respected, feared, built, uh, yet kind PR (laughs) professional who has logged time with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's Adam Millard. Adam, uh, kind of an esoteric intro question. Uh, the other day I was talking to my wife and I said the line, dishes are done, man. And she's like, is that from don't tell mom the babysitter is dead? And I said, yes, it is. So let me ask you, do, do you carry any holdover pop culture one-liners from stuff no one would ever remember? <laughs> uh No. <laughs> You're super current all the time. I'll give you another one. I'll give you You the Man Now,
2: Dog. Yeah, You The Man Now, Dog is a great one. Uh and also uh, You put me on the spot as usual. I uh not not that I can think of, but it'd probably be from Karate Kid.
1: Yeah. Another one that I another one that I really throw out a lot is I got some beers. Let's drink 'em. That's from uh Dead Man on Campus, the Zach Morris movie after he left uh oh, yeah. saved by the bell cliff. The crazy guy? Anyway, okay. I just want to I got got one more
2: for you. I have one from Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, always be closing. That's more used in a professional setting than personal setting, but always be closing is the line. I
1: don't know, man. The internet has been kind to that scene and that line. That's not, I've got some beers, let's drink them obscure. uh, What what about, uh, I'll never
0: tell. (laughs) <laughs> i didn't tell. say it was better a better
2: <laughs> Oh yeah that's good yeah i don't have anything obscure sorry
1: <laughs> all right well uh i R. will R- britney murphy anyway i will tell you all about the man in our brooklyn bureau he is seven time emmy winning sports producer gareth Hughes. gareth that was a good poll from the britney murphy era r.i.p uh anything else uh that you would that, that, that just rolls off the tongue that you would say is obscure that you throw out well, the reason
0: I could jump right in on this is because the dish, dishes are done, man, is my go-to for that. Like, that is my number one random movie that, quote, that if I throw it out, you'd know it. It's like, oh, yes, yeah, see? Early Josh Charles, you're with me on that. Um, but, yeah, then uh, You the Man Now, dog, and Don't Say a Word were... I think I, I once, like, tried to write, like, a blog post about bad movies with good trailer lines where it's like, I will never see this movie or this movie is terrible, but it had that one line
1: from the trailer that totally resonated. You, you, the man now, dog, is Finding Forrester, I believe, the Sean Connery literary uh, the literary shut-in vehicle, which is a, a movie they do not make anymore in Hollywood.
0: Guts Van Zandt's follow-up to Goodwill Hunting, I believe.
2: No, it wasn't. I was going to say it was the black Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon does make a cameo in the end, but I don't think it's connected.
1: <laughs> uh, not
2: in this, not in the same, whatever you would title it, Gareth, the literary mastermind uh, universe.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah, mean, the, the Finding Forrester extended universe, the Goodwill Hunting right, extended yeah, universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Time to move forward clearly. So we got a great show, great interview up ahead, but right now. We're taking the open of the show and making it wide open because guys, hit the hit the buzzer noises. Phew, phew, phew. Athlete rap album alert on the heels of Arian Foster dropping what Adam Willard described as the GOAT athlete rap album ever, which we we. I think all aligned on <laughs> last week is pretty pretty <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, yet another Texas-based well-known player has released a hip-hop album. That would be Cole Beasley with the autobiography a uh I don't know. I don't want to say curiously titled, but wasn't it wasn't the the title I was expecting for the album just given the overall mood and tone of it. But I digress. Let's let's take a listen.
3: Say hello, to missus slept on Early mornings, I ain't slept long Big headed, so I'm headstrong Had to be just to be headed To where I was going, like my head gone They said I'm crazy, but I told them all That it's no biggie, but you're dead wrong I'm the wrong one to be swept off Up under the rug Patience of a wondrous love To come from the mud and get y'all up off me flowing circles round them like drawstrings Overheads get most reach. For the stars, I was taught dream Never stop, eat, wreak havoc like have a moth deep you this, this thing was...
1: Well-regarded in terms of uh, sales, it cracked. I think the top ten of the iTunes charts for a day. Um, it got a lot of buzz. I mean, every time athletes put out music, it, it gets it gets media. But there was certainly a lot of a lot of discussion around it. And I'm am just wondering from you, like it felt like the sales of the album were pretty hot, just given his overall star power within his sport. I mean, he's a well-known player, but he's not as well-known as Damian Lillard is in the NBA. So right. w- w- were you surprised at the reception to the album? Um, or should we chalk that up to popular team? Uh, is there any- anything else involved? Like, w- what did you think when you saw this thing actually moving units, as uh, as they say in the biz?
2: Well, Brad, as you know, uh, I worked for the Green Bay Packers. Um also known as America, truly America's team, uh, and I really think if you because of the exposure that those teams have. So if this was to happen with the Golden State Warriors in the NBA, it happened with the Dallas Cowboys. If it was the Chicago Cub, because of the attention that's on the team and the name recognition of even not the star players, I think that's why it's doing well. So I think it's. A novelty in that sense. And I don't mean that it's a novelty album in the sense that he's a white player, because I don't care about that. But I do think it's, um, I mean, good for him, but I don't think it was purely based on the music.
1: Gareth, um, how do you think Le'Veon Bell felt? Uh, Le'Veon who very much criticized in music form the Steelers for not supporting his album when he gets on Instagram and sees like Des Bryant and D- Dak like blowing up this album being like go download it. The first thing I thought was like where is that love for Le'Veon and, and w- what kind of behind the scenes influencer campaign was Cole running because that was some real authentic sort of I think support from his teammates and and, and some former teammates.
0: Yeah, no, I think they support him on this. Um, it's easy to, I don't know, is that the Cowboys though versus the Steelers? Like, I feel like the Cowboys' mo at this point, for better or for worse, is be you or do you, bro. I
1: was I was very much aware listening to this that this was a record written. Uh, in anticipation of blowback, and there are a number of songs that seem almost devoted to—I don't want to say justify their existence—but uh, in anticipation of blowback on, uh, you know, look, there were a lot of songs that were about, uh, you know, you like United Hate of America that that I thought was going to make, make maybe a broader cultural statement, but was a lot about just athletes getting hated on. Um, there's a lot of stuff about. Uh, the st- like the song stereotypes, which, which gets into uh, what he expects to hear as a as a white person in hip hop, and 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 clearly, you know, just the, the 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 song shock value, which I think was his sort of first uh, single off of it, which talks a lot about uh, just how people are going to blame the idea that that he's distracted from his sport by even making this. So, Adam, from your from your perspective, what did you think about? maybe the defensive posture that Cole took in the artistic process here.
2: I think he was aware of the blowback that he would get and was trying to proactively defend that. Um, But it does come off – there's a confidence in his flow uh, and in some of the lyrics, but I do think that that proactive defensiveness – Distracted from what could have been an otherwise pretty fun album.
0: Yeah, you, Brad, what you are describing is the lowest stakes defensiveness you could possibly have come <laughs> up with. <laughs> <laughs> like uh-huh. these are the stereo. It's like it almost as I am about to describe this. This is going to sound to me like a Lonely Island thing, but like these are the stereotypes that I face as a white wide receiver in the NFL rapping <laughs> you know
1: like <laughs> okay yes but I actually that was my favorite song on the album because I felt like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in that song like when he says I'm a wigger to my white friends to my black friends I'm just light-skinned I mean, that's interesting to me that like he feels more accepted in the black community he's married to an African American woman or, or a woman who is non-white um, you know that, and he talked about that in the album as well uh, it it did feel like he was saying something personal and trying to talk about that. And later in that song I really liked how he talked about if I was if I wasn't white, would they call me deceptively fast or would they drop the deceptive off of that?
3: I think that's interesting. Why is everyone mad at me? I'm just trying to be who I am. Telling me what I have to be. What's the matter who invited them? To me, I was a whiteout, but they couldn't white all my white out. 3,000 y'alls don't no come by, no i saw no invite could have taken the time out Okay, I was short, that was right now I've seen something that's shorter that's flying out Deceptively fast, sneaky, athletic Well, thank you for half-assing, giving me credit I bet if I'm black, the deceptive would exit They see me with milling, but still don't respect it Mix them like at its credits in a second And the misdirect misdirecting when switching directions With quickness as weapon, yet when progressing I'm still in a section, embedded in lanes I can't seem to finesse it, others the same And i seen them collect it. stuck in a slot Man, I'm needed to stretch it, spread me out wide And then feed it, I catch it, white and I'm short So they all second-guess it, but just cause I'm that Don't mean that I can't wreck it, not even a chance While AB is on seconds, eat
1: I like when he's talking about his his place as a a a, a white receiver, which has always been sort of a punchline in the NFL, you know syntax. Uh, to me, I, I wish there was a, le- a little bit more of that ringing through the album, and maybe uh, kind of in a fun way that maybe captured his personality because at times he really is fun. There, there's a there's a real sense on a couple songs, uh, even like you know songs like "Look at Me." That I felt like toe the line between him playing more of a character versus him just trying to get out there and rap. And I kind of wanted to dial up the character. Adam, am I crazy with that or no?
2: And what dial up the character in what sense?
1: I meant like there were legit lines when I felt like he was doing the thing that Eminem did. And I, I'm not making a white-on-white white comparison I with understand. rappers. But it, when Eminem would just kind of be like... Rapping with Dr. Dre or being really silly. He was like a cartoon yeah. rapper. And he was very, right. but, but it was different. And it was, or even, uh, and it got, I'm doing it again. I'm making another comparison. But we've had Jensen Carp on the show, aka Hot Carl, who talked openly <laughs> about embracing sort of a caricature of who he was and having fun and being witty and sardonic. And I guess maybe that's just what white rappers need to do. You You. you or, well, else, or else you sound like post-fucking Malone, who just is taking himself so seriously that it's like, get get out of here with this. This is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I, I think more personality needed to be involved, but and less talk about his in-the-locker-room life. I think to establish yourself as an artist and, and to really get someone hooked on the album, I'm not sure that they want... Um, a Players' Tribune article in every song. And, that, and that's not to say that he can't talk about his profession, but listening to Arian Foster's albums and then even Damian Lillard's second album, I think what you can appreciate about those is there's less talk about who they are as athletes and really more talk about who they are as people. Um, so it seemed to be that he was speaking as a white rapper who also plays in a African-American-dominated industry uh, and that he might get some hate for that rather than just talking about who he is. I think he's a super interesting guy, as you said. He um, has a a wife of non-white ethnicity. He went to a very diverse high school. Um, If you want to make the comparison to Eminem, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how he grew up. Calling it um, a Players'
0: Tribune article in every song that was awesome. That was that was a perfect <laughs> way of summing up the album. That's no, no, probably it's just that was like a, a, like for look. This is an episode where we are going to go deep on record collecting and kind of quasi music criticism, and that is the best line of music criticism <laughs> that will happen in this show. Well, so, he did, Adam. You talk props. about lyrical
1: lyrical content. He did uh, in the song "80 uh, Stings." He talked about my bank account looks juiced up. I want to know can right. you can you get a 4 game suspension for for saying your bank accounts juiced up
2: in the NFL you can or the <laughs> UFC <laughs>
3: That's rapping, can't do much. Gotta go harder, it's too much. All cause of stigma. I reply with this first enigma. Gotta listen back just to learn the picture. My first description take the earth to spin before the verse can hit them. I'm the first with skin of what's against what's in Of bus rap elites. But actually, it only took one to revert the system. Get them. Look at how I curve the rhythm. Just squirting venom like a nervous cobra with no one. You know if that's working with them. Still a blow up fast, know I'm worth it. When my curse have written red and then blurted. sitting them with neurotransmitters in my nervous system. Flip your system, resuscitate it. moves like food trucks. Getting to of bread till it's chewed up in my body. Make look juiced
1: up. Uh, let me ask you guys this, and Adam. Adam, I especially want to ask you, given that you, uh, if you could see me, uh, audience, I'm turning my head sideways and looking straight into camera. Since you worked for the Green, for Bay, the Green Packers, Bay Packers, and Gareth, mm-hmm. since you worked for the New England Patriots, uh, I should ask you, you both, Skip Bayless called out Cole for being. You know, distracted. That's why he had a bad season last year. Blah blah blah. I actually dove deep into this. I, I read some really interesting analysis online about the way the defenses keyed on him last year differently, uh, and, and how there was like real d- strategy with the with the way they played the slot. That that what was it that? that they brought a.
0: Did they bring in a Nickel Corner who had been training at open mics who could <laughs> battle rap him off the line? Yeah. with every, Like, yo, yo, drop my bars. I'm a
1: kicker written. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I wanted to talk about, because Cole fired back on Twitter and he said, look, most of this music was written in 2016 when I had my best year. And we've always maintained that you're not a distraction for just going home from work and doing something else with your time. So... But I I still don't think a lot of fans understand that these guys are not in the building 20 hours a day every day doing stuff. So can you can you walk us through just how much actual free time that a an NFL player might have in his day uh to do something that, you know, would be not watching film?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a physically demanding, physically and mentally demanding job there's no question that they put in a ton of hours during the season and i will speak only to the experience um that i was around but guys get in around seven o'clock and have breakfast and lift and do whatever they need to do they have a morning film session um practice depending on the team is at 11 or one o'clock there's more film there's media afterwards and then a lot of guys in my experience, again, we're out of the building by four o'clock. So a long, slightly longer day. Well, for not for the three of us. Um, but I think it's just like any other job. It, you get what you put in and there's different uh, there's different levels of work ethic, if you will, or dedication to the job. There's guys like Ray Lewis who really did live football. I think that unfortunately perpetuated... Um, a negative athlete stereotype in a way, because he would go to the facility all day and go home and his TV at night was watching film. Um, but I do think there are there are absolutely times for passion projects, even if it's just on the Tuesday off day, or after the Saturday morning walkthrough, there's certainly time to pursue other things. And there's a lot of evidence in any profession that pursuing other things and having distractions, if you will, is a healthy thing. Uh, so I don't think that football players should be any different.
0: My daughter had a piano recital recently and she was trying to practice and practice and she started getting really frustrated. She got really upset and I sat her down and I started talking to her about the idea of the point of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And like we should accept that in all fields, like that there is a moment in where you you're not getting any more out of this. You know what I mean? Where uh, I was writing something the other day and I fell asleep with a computer on my lap. And I went back and read what I was writing just before I fell asleep. And I'd gotten a few names wrong. Like it was just, it was bad. It was unusable. It was not, um, I shouldn't have been doing it. I should have walked away and done something else. So I think we should all just sort of embrace that and understand that it might make us better in the long run. Doing other things, pursuing other interests.
1: Yeah, I think what bothers me most about the Bayless comments is how disingenuous they are. Like Skip Bayless is playing a, yeah. a character on TV, and, and a lot of media, especially niche media, political media, sports media, are doing this. They're they are going into meetings and being like, "I'm going to argue this. That's going to get me, uh, you know, viral content. I'm going to tweet this. It's going to get a lot of uh, engagements." I just don't think Skip Bayless gives a shit about whether Cole Beasley or anybody else is making music on the side. Like, we've seen guys do... uh, Like, Michael Jordan was in Space Jam during the greatest (laughs) athletic run in history. Like, why do we keep adjudicating this when we have proven examples that it's not a factor in their performance, right?
2: Yeah, to get people like us stirred up. Uh, So... Uh, To our forty thousand weekly listeners, uh, we are now giving Skip Bayless yet another platform. Um, (laughs) We're giving him even more. We're giving him the uh, attention that he wants. So yeah, I don't think that there is anything to it. Um, I will say, Cole Beasley is a productive player. There, I, I will maybe argue the other side that there are there definitely are times in any profession where there are people who are distracted by their side hustle, So there is the balance of making sure you're taking care of the day job. Um, but when you're done with the day job, when you've done a good job, there's no reason that you can't be able to perform in something else. We are all managers of millennials. Um, and in the millennial culture, there are times where I'm like, why am I working 10 to 12 hours when so-and-so isn't? And the answer just may well be that because they've got it figured out in a way I don't.
1: Yeah, you know what? The way I would close this out would be I left intrigued for a second album that didn't need to spend as much time defending its existence.
2: So do you think, so we listened to Arian Foster's uh project i'm pointing at the ret- sky
1: sammy sosa style when you say harry foster's <laughs> rap because it's so good
2: so the <laughs> thought occurred to me is he feel like he has more artistic freedom because there's no longer a a governing body if you will that's looking at his every move so in other words he's out of the game he's in his second phase of life i guess in terms of um by athlete standards, did he have a little bit more creative freedom than maybe some of the current athletes who have put it out? Because I, I remember hearing this. Although I liked the style of Damian Lillard's first album, there was a there was still a lot of um, references to his basketball playing, and um, I felt he played it safe in some places. Is it because Arian Foster is just a better has a better understanding of music? Or do you think that these guys are a little bit more careful in what they put out, knowing that they're current athletes, they're going to have to hear about it, not only from their teammates, but media and fans, and God forbid, the the front office and the, the NFL league office?
1: I think Arian benefited from not having to be a current athlete who has to deal with the justification that this is what you're doing with your life. I, I think... You're a little bit less encumbered by what the league wants to say, but I also just think that <laughs> that guy might be the greatest rapper of all time. <laughs>
2: <And> like, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's incredibly hard for me to talk about with anyone taking me seriously because I just went on vacation and found myself still listening to a lot of that.
2: <laughs> like, yeah. Of it. like,
1: so I, I, I don't know. He's a, he might be a bad example because he's so talented and so confident in what he's doing musically uh, and doing stuff with like real musicians and it, it sounded so fresh that i yeah. i just don't know um i i don't know if the extraneous other factors you know had that much to do with an album that probably was going to be awesome no matter what <laughs> <If that laughs> yeah true and that is wide open. Right now, we are going to go to our interview with Nathaniel Friedman. Uh, super great guy. Really talented writer. Unique perspective on sports and culture. You can read his columns in GQ. Uh, he does a lot of other work here and there just around the the, the worlds of media and marketing. Uh, we broke down his love of record collecting, which... Uh, as you know, is kind of now our thing, <laughs> even more <laughs> than than the other thing that we do. As uh, Gareth is 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 record collector uh, numero uno, and Adam is getting into it. Uh, I did my best to get through this without embarrassing myself, uh, but these guys go deep on the art and science of record collecting. Uh, when you should dial your collection back, uh, embarrassing finds in your own personal collection and of course Brad's shallow question about high fidelity and whether that movie made any sense in the context of the record collecting universe and after that we will be back to distract you stick around
0: All right, Nathaniel, let's start with some basics. Uh, When did you start collecting records? What inspired it? And how many do you have in your house?
4: I, let's see, I, I, it's hard to, I kind of had a slow descent into madness because I feel like there were, I mean, I've been, have had records since I was in high school. I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There are lots of good stores that stocks both vinyl and compact discs. And they're sort of like over the, you know, intervening, I'm what, 40 now, I was, at one point, 17 or 18. So in the intervening 22 years, I feel like things have just gotten progressively like more and more involved and more and more expensive, and mm-hmm. just generally slid from kind of like, oh, I like this, and here's a copy on vinyl instead of CD, to now I'm where I am, where I'm like, oh, here's this original Sun Ross Saturn. And I clearly need to do this instead of like fix a car that I own. Um, <laughs> and the, the sort of like uh this may be disqualifying or maybe it's just sort of like the plot twist i actually at the moment only own like 400 records like i'm a huge purging person like much to the detriment Boom. of my kind of bottom line as a human being but i mean i'm always kind of like cycling through things and trying to yes. lose as little money as possible um but it's, it's weird it's like you reach a point where like you know because i've had way more in the past i've had like you know 1200 records but then it's like once you start purging enough then the standard becomes so ridiculously high that it's sort of hard to rash ration- it, it's on the one hand good because it's hard to rationalize just buying things haphazardly but then it's also hard because then you start to be like well wait i just bought this thing but do i really love it as much as i thought it did and then it sort of starts to just like with misery in do own right
0: absolutely i love where your head's at so look i'll just for my like I started my sophomore year in college when I got really into rap music and hip hop and some friends were DJs and they started teaching me about samples. And uh, so that was about 20 years ago. Uh, I'm down to a four by two expedite. I have called a lot of that over the years. So we seem to have fairly similar backgrounds. You've been doing it a little longer than me, but we'll get to that later. I want to save that for the end. Let me ask you this. Um, so you're talking about like Sun things like that. Like, what do you, what do you collect? Like, do you buy new music on vinyl? Do you only buy old stuff, original pressings? What do you look for?
4: I, um, again, as sort of a weird attempt at self-limiting, I really only buy old stuff and except sets on absolutely impossible original pressings, uh, which kind of is supposed to limit the amount of money I spend. Because I know if you walk, into, especially with there being so many amazing reissues happening now, if I walked into a store and I bought reissues, you know, I could drop hundreds of dollars any time I left the house. If you're only buying original pressings of stuff that, again, in my vastly culled down record universe, that sort of like is up to that ridiculously high standard I've set for myself there, you know, there's a lot fewer things for you to buy. Like if I go on, mm-hmm. like, can I just say Discogs and if someone knows what it is, let me explain that.
0: Yeah, no, so that was going to be my next one. Like, how do you shop at this point? Do you do in person? Do you go online? Everyone, Discogs is the world's biggest online record clearinghouse. Um, eBay is another popular stop. Craig Moore at, I guess it's rarerecords.com, although I don't go there anymore because I go to Discogs, is another outlet. So are you online or are you in person?
4: Much to my chagrin, I am not really out in the world in the way I was when I was young. Like, I don't really go to thrift stores or go to flea markets or even, like, I mean, you know, sometimes if I go to a store a lot of times, I'll just go to the new releases or the new, new arrivals. But, I mean, there's yep. a couple, couple stores. Like, I mean, I live in Portland, Oregon. There's some very good stores here. And I go to those pretty regularly. And then once online, you know, everyone is always online, always trawling for stuff. It's kind of hard to really comprehensively come up in any way. But there's a couple people mm-hmm. that are spellers on Discogs uh, that I've like known for a while who always have good stuff, and I just sort of, you know, over the course of the day, we'll check in on them and see if anything new has gone up. But it's not, you know, even the internet is not like it was a decade ago where you could just, Cause I remember going, I just sometimes I'd sit on eBay and refresh the Buy It Nows for Jazz or yep. Soul, and stuff would just come up that would be horribly underpriced, and you just grab it before someone else did And now, like, You know, there's, like, threads devoted to things that are underpriced on (laughs) Discogs or eBay, so it's not nearly as uh, wide open as it once was.
1: I want to know what record you're most embarrassed to own. I don't think I have anything
4: that I wouldn't kind of, like, vouch for as good or fun or interesting to listen to. I mean, I've gone through phases where I suddenly one day woke up and didn't understand why. I went through, like, an African phase. Maybe, like, a couple of years ago, where I just could not get enough African records. And then one day I woke up and realized that while there's a tremendous amount of good music from that continent, I didn't sort of unconditionally love all of it. And maybe I should get rid of the stuff that didn't really like flip my boat outside of the novelty of having an African record, which, you know, Dogs. at one point,
0: Latin. It was- I'm with you, man. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> there, there, I mean,
4: there is, there is something cool though about when you kind of discover this whole, you know, like a whole sort of musical subuniverse, especially if it's one that like you never really thought to. Because that's the thing is like it it's something that I was aware of, but just never really looked into. And then one day I realized that you know, oh, I've been really into music and really into all kinds of music for decades now, but I've never delved into this one thing. And there's kind of a novelty of that. And then also just the unfamiliarity of it. Like, I didn't know how to listen to it. I didn't know what any of those genres were. I can't understand what they're saying. And then at some point, you know, you gain a certain amount of familiarity or it, you sort of get a little, a little burst in it. And then you start to be able to decide what you like and don't like. But there is that kind of like blush first blush thing where it's really exciting to find something that feels that new. Uh,
0: can I ask what, what of the, what of the African continent did you keep?
4: um, I think the thing that the well, the country that I sort of realized I like best was Mali. Um, okay. Notably, I think is one of the like Mali and Ethiopia. I think have kind of the darkest sounding uh, music from Africa. There's you know like mm-hmm. Nigeria. Um, I I learned this the hard way because uh, a friend of mine who run a store in town uh, called Little Axe had crates and crates and crates of Nigerian records coming from some weird connection. And I realized over the course of going through them and listening to things, you know, over the several months they were coming in, that Nigeria is just fundamentally outside of Afrobeat. It's just too happy for me to deal with. Like the music, I'm not saying Nigeria is a fun or easy place to live in, but the music that comes out of Nigeria is like almost across the board, very like bouncy and sounds major key often. It feels very upbeat, at least, you know, to Western ears,
0: you know, it starts to veer into disco. A lot of that stuff too. And then you're just sort of like, Oh,
4: well, this is the thing though. I love disco, but Nigerian disco is so bright and so disco that Yeah. I can't deal. I mean, if there's like, mm-hmm. you know, disco, there's some like texture or some like weight to it. It's cool. It's like some of my favorite music, but Nigerian disco, it's like, how are you this dope? like I can't do-
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right I did look i've I've gone down a little bit of an African road, but I like this because I have not explored Malian music.
1: I'm not gonna lie. you guys kind of lost me you got you kind of lost me in the last last six minutes or so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and claw back toward normalcy. <laughs> Look, I, I'm a I'm an impulsive collector myself. I've gone through several phases of my life. I've collected everything from old uh, Bengals washout jerseys, like which, which I quit when my wife discovered I had multiple Kajana Carters. So I I understand like the the joy of amassing a collection and the phases you go through with that. I guess I I guess I would go back to. I hear a lot of times from record collectors or just vinyl enthusiasts how they believe the sound quality on vinyl is better. And I have never been someone who, I don't want to say like felt that. I understand how that could be the way you think about it, but that was never the way I greeted it. So I'm going to ask you, do you prefer the the actual sound quality of vinyl to other mediums, especially digital mediums, which I know people have criticized for sort of flattening out the the uh, the nuances of the music, or is it about the art of collecting and the process of doing
4: that? I, I feel like for me, it's both, but I will definitely unconditionally ride for vinyl sounding better in almost every case. There's some newer records that just because of how they're produced, like you're saying, you really can barely tell the difference. But there's also things that are new too, like the uh of the table, the Salon's record. When I listened to it on Spotify, I thought it was very good, not brilliant. And then when I somehow I think I bought my girlfriend it on vinyl and was listening to it at her place. I'm like, wow, this is a absolute classic record. I couldn't like really even hear it correctly until I like had it cranked and, you know, it was fully like warmed up and felt like the way it was supposed to be heard. Um, and again, I don't think every record works that way, but a, you know, a high percentage of them do. I just feel like you're not, not you're not hearing it the way it was intended to be heard if you're not listening on vinyl, but you're just not getting as like rich a listening experience. That said, like does, do I go about my daily life like, assessing whether the high frequencies are tracking in the way that they would on a blah 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 blah, you know, receiver with X, Y, and Z cartridge? No. I think it's more like You know, if I'm in my car, which is not of a great stereo system, listening to Spotify, I only expect so much in the way of, like, texture and fidelity. If I'm sitting at home, like, if it starts to sound sort of, like, crappy, I'm like, oh, maybe I need a new needle or something. Like, my ears are more sensitive depending
0: on kind of where I am. You don't consider yourself an audiophile? I mean, that's
4: something that I, I kind of nipped in the bud at one point. Like, I think at one point I spent, like, (laughs) 600 bucks on a cartridge, but I listened to music so much that I burned through them in six months. So at that point, you're paying, like, 100 bucks a month to have a a record deal, which is insane. So I think now, you know, I have, like, nice old stuff, but it's not, you know, I'm not someone who has, like, five turntables and three needles for each one and, like, a separate tube. I mean, I just have, like, a pretty basic setup. It's just, like, good old stuff.
1: My first like introduction to record collecting as a thing was like many basic ass white dudes, uh, high fidelity and both the book and the movie. So I'm curious from your guys perspective, um, knowing that set the mood for what record collecting is for a lot of people, uh, who, who never kind of explored it enough to know any better. Uh, it, it it Nathaniel, if you if you've if you've either seen the movie or read the book, like, what did that get right and wrong about the actual process and culture of it?
4: Well, one thing that has recently been drawn to my attention that I don't think I think I grasped it at the time, especially with the movie for some reason. But someone wrote a thing the other day on Noisy about just what a jerk that main character is, and not just sort of like oh has kind of bad social skills and is, you know, sort of self-absorbed. But they were like, yeah, he's like a creepy stalker. I mean, it it, it kind of, it's forever changed the way I think about that movie and that book because it made me realize that not only does he have very few redeeming qualities, he might actually be a bad person.
1: No, right. I mean, he pressured his girlfriend into an abortion, then cheated on her. Like, I mean, he's a a total creep. Yeah,
4: the 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 one, but I do think the thing that I always think about though, when I think about that, is like a the. I mean, this is what this is a book. I think I don't know if it's in the movie or not, but in the book, it's like very specific. I think Um, there's a scene in the book where a woman brings in, basically brings in her husband's collection of like rare soul seven inches, and (laughs) offers to sell it to them at like some ridiculously low price, just to spite him. And they're like really torn because, on the one hand, they're total like grippy record nerds and are very excited to suddenly get their hands on all these records for very little money. But they also very much understand the pain that it would cause this man (laughs) to lose his record collection. (laughs) They seem very unconcerned about the fact that this woman is so upset with her husband that she's like, you know, gutting his hobby like that. They don't seem to really register that part of the situation. They're just like, I feel his potential pain, not his personal life falling apart, but that his record's being taken. But I can't remember <laughs> right. what happened. If it or not. But that, that predicament like, stuck
0: with me. I believe in that scene in the book you're referencing, which I think they did shoot for the movie, but then cut for time. I, I think yes. somebody posted it online a few years ago. Uh, the the one, he, he treats himself, he lets himself buy I think it's Otis Redding's, you left your water running on 45 like that's the one of this guy's records that he's like he had never seen like a promo pressing of it or something like that so he buys that like and so like to your point i will say that i think like high fidelity came out when i was in college i'd just gotten into this then i worked in a record store for a a year and uh look get digging into the relationship stuff and like I don't know, looking at it through a new lens, probably p- problematically, I'm not going to wade into that. But I thought the overall vibe of the record part of it was pretty accurate. But one of the things I also liked was like, I don't know, he has very Catholic taste, where it's just sort of like, he's he knows how to view music in a commodified way. Like, he has opinions on soul and punk and new music and Fleetwood Mac, like... It's something that he understands that you have to like everything if you're going to sell it all.
4: It's also weird with that movie and the book because they almost are as much about, um, about like record store culture as they are yeah. record collecting, um, and sort of like that. That and I, you know, this is something that makes me feel old because I feel like there's a whole generation that they never understand this. But just that whole, you know, especially like with the Jack Black character, like that whole vibe of like the record store know it all who had some sort of weird authority or commanded some weird level of respect, even though you had no, you knew nothing about them, other than when you walked up to the counter, they were going to probably be rude to you. You know, it was always like, it was never questioned that that person like knew what was going on, had better taste than you did and could rub it in your face. Um, But it's weird. It's like, I feel like in certain ways, um, I don't know, in certain ways, like I think over the years, the world of collecting has kind of been, I think, okay, let me just say this. I think there used to, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, before everyone had everything and everything was available, information was on the internet, I think there was more of, like, kind of a snobby streak in record collecting where it was like, oh, I know about this and you don't, and I'm not even going to tell you about it because you don't know the right people to have heard this. But now that everyone can hear everything at all times and that sort of secret society aspect has been blown, and also, uh, correlatively, now that kind of like this other institution of, you know, the record store jerk, Cashier person has disappeared. I feel like now um, things are a little more open, and and it's also too. It's like every like you're saying, like being into vinyl is no longer a niche thing. Like there's nothing special about being into vinyl anymore, and you can't just by virtue of being someone who buys records that cost a lot of money somehow flex on people and say that you're more interesting than them because you know that's so many people do that now. But I think it's more <laughs> like there's more of a. I think I think I think honestly, I think now it's less than elitism and more kind of a weird spirit of camaraderie around people like us who have like a really pathological relationship with it. Because I think it's kind of like, you can't really say I'm doing something cool. No one else is, but you can say like, I have a very bad diseased version of this that no one else has.
0: So let me ask you this then, as we start to wrap up, Um, what is your white whale? And I want two answers here. Like I have two white whales. Like I want a copy of, Modern Lovers on Home of the Hits, because I'm an original pressings guy all the way too um, and I just don't have it. I also don't have a clean copy of, Ma- I have every Funkadelic, like great copies of every Funkadelic record except Maggot Brain, and so I'm holding out for a westbound gatefold on that. But I also lust after uh, a color copy original of the Haru per- uh, Percussion Group. So, like, that is a record that I lust after which it was it was sealed at FMU last year dude was selling it for $1,500 I did not throw down but so what is like one thing that's just sort of like eluded you that like should be achievable like that maybe you could go on Discogs tonight and get and then what is your like I will search to the end of the seas for Moby Dick kind of white whale
4: I mean, I'll never own it because at this point, like, costs more than an automobile. But black community trio would be cool to have. Um, But I mean, there was one on Discogs for like three thousand dollars recently, so that's probably out of reach. Uh, Thing, I'm trying to think of something that's reasonable that has just
1: eluded me. What car are you getting for three grand?
4: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know. That's a good point. I I guess. I guess. I guess not. uh... Yeah, you know what? Maybe this puts in perspective. Maybe I like that I'm thinking that if a record is less than a
1: car, maybe it's within like my price range. <laughs> yeah, those are those but are definitely start, ni- 1996 that, I, that, prices, man. <laughs> yeah, just, I got some bad news if you, if you're just starting to drive. <laughs> no, no, it's well, no, it is funny. Yeah, that's embarrassing.
4: I I think I'm also thinking of um. Well, no, I mean honestly, like you can you can get like a uh, um you can. <laughs> Like I bought, oh uh, whatever. I know there are like fairly decent older cars that, if you talk to the right people, you can get that need a little bit of work for that. Let's put it that way. Yeah,
1: no, that's like, fair.
4: If you if you, if you if you want an old Mercedes that needs some work, it is a super like collectible era. You can get an old Mercedes that needs some work for four grand. Um, you know, like a early '90s Mercedes or something. Yeah. So, but Would I rather have that than, would I rather have a, a kind of junky, nice car, or would I rather have a free jazz record? I don't know. Those both seem like things that <laughs> don't really be. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm looking about, it, it, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing where I was like, if I could, you know, kind of just will one record into my life at a reasonable cost, I think that would be that. But that's also just because it's such, so impossible and unattainable that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it is so many people's white whale, you know? I, but I don't right. remember. Was Ahab the only person after Moby Dick or did other people know about
0: Moby Dick? Uh, I've, I've said on this very podcast that that is the best book ever written, so I should know the answer to this. But I think that it was more of a monomaniacal personal quest for him because of the loss of his leg. Um, I, I think my guess is that they're... And I recall roughly that there was a, that there was, there was legend around this whale and they get into it that people talked about that she was the biggest one in the ocean or whatnot, but that um, it was really just his mania that drove all that.
1: Gareth legitimately had me read Moby Dick at his wedding, and uh, I feel like we're like three questions away from him pulling up half an amulet that you have like the other half to. And you guys are like, <laughs> "Holy shit!" It, it, is,
4: it is like a thing with Moby Dick, though, right? Because it's like, why did only he like why Why didn't he have any competition? Like, why was there no one else who was like also on the trail? Like, I don't know. It makes me wonder if Moby Dick
0: my guess of it is that most of these people are like, who's the fucking crazy guy after this one spit? Like, dude, there's millions of whales. <laughs> they all have oil in them. Like, just kill any of the other whales. <laughs> so,
4: Right. It's not um, like, it's not like hunting like a prize tiger or something where like, you know, it's killed 70 <laughs> men and it's beautiful and like a whale's going an epic whale, you
0: know? All right, let me, I want to end on this question because this is one that I, I, I posed to a, record geek board recently, waxidermy, if you're curious. And uh would you um give it the say whatever like I'm with you that I'm happy that overall that records are more plentiful and or you can find them more places than you used to, especially on the internet. That said, the prices for things have gone up a lot since you and I started doing this. Things that you used to be able to get for a couple bucks are now 30 or 40, if not more. They're harder to come by. Condition can be an issue. Would you do it? Would you start again if you were starting from zero now? Like let's say you're one of these people who reads about how cool that you can get records everywhere. Would you start collecting now or would you not do it all over again?
4: No, I mean if I if I got handed if I got my first record player tomorrow, or yesterday, or today, or whatever, I would just buy
0: cool reissues
4: because, mm-hmm. yeah, the entire original pressing thing is premised on an earlier era when, like you said, things were not as expensive and there were not as many people going after them. Uh, it was not so uh, much of like a business for so many people that it was kind of ransacked everywhere it could be on a daily basis. And also, you know, you, know, you could go out into the field and find things that were worth $100 and 50 cents. cents. Like that was a thing that happened, Yep. you know, not on a regular basis, but like that was, that was a good
1: day.
0: It kept the hunt going.
4: Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so I think now though, I mean, yeah, between like all those things having changed, I just, you know, like I said, like I, I kind of feel like in a weird way, um, being the kind of collector I am right now is like those things. What is it? Don't whales like have parts of, Feet somewhere in their body or something
0: that I don't know like flippers uh, no, like flipper, flippers
4: flippers are kind of like with oh no vest vestigial. there's some weird or vestigial there's some evolutionary term for when your anatomy has some part of a feature that you're you no longer have um,
0: mm-hmm.
4: like there's things that like have pieces of tail still attached to their skeleton but they don't actually haven't had tails in millions of years That's sort of how I feel about collecting records the way I do. It's like the way you do now. You know, there's no, it just kind of belongs to a bygone era. Trying to do it doesn't really work that well anymore. But it's like, I don't really know what the alternative is. I mean, I I, I think about it sometimes, like, should I just sell all these records I have and take the money and, like, invest it or something? Because, And then I'm just like, well, what would I have to show for however many decades of doing this then? You know, I don't even have that many records anymore, but it does represent something of... Not like an accomplishment, but it's like I put so much time and energy into this. If I suddenly was like collectionless, that would be kind of discouraging.
1: I I think the joy of collecting something is uh it, fun and it's meaningful and and we shouldn't have to feel bad that others may swoop in and find it you know somewhat frivolous or confusing or they just don't quite understand the value. Uh, I mean Gareth used to make. I remember Gareth, uh, you taping uh, fish fish live shows in the '90s, but half the time you were just kind of meeting new people and and just it was a good conversation starter, if nothing else, you know. So I mean, it to me, it's all about I did, I, did stuff you
0: I was into I was into I was into rap music in high school. Look, I think that frankly, record collecting to me was became like the last musical. What am I trying to say? Like the last musical, like um. I don't know, like everyone, as a kid, you're kind of looking for your identity through music. And then I kind of found record collecting. I was like, oh, if I do this, I could just like everything. And and then you start to meet the people that have the best record collections or know the most about cool records, and you realize that they are the ones who aren't very rigid in their tastes and who can teach you about folk records you'd never heard of or funk records or things that were micro pressed on a 45 out of a garage in Louisiana. And then you're like, Oh, and I do think it puts a value on, I don't know. Well, it certainly puts a value on taste, but it puts a value on a sort of taste and aesthetic that just appreciates who can get it done, who can make something and put it out there and get it sorted out. And uh, so, yeah. That's what I came to love about that. Was just that it was it was less rigid than any other subculture that I had ever taken part of or seen. So,
4: and I think I think there's some people who kind of you know bemoan the fact that you know at least that part of it, the taste part of it, is no longer as much of a subculture as it once was. You know the fact that like mm-hmm. I was saying, all the stuff gets reissued, lots of people hear it. Uh, you can look up all the stuff on the internet. I mean, just the existence of something like Waxodermy. Like, you can go mm-hmm. through Waxodermy and learn it to be a record collector in, like, you know, two days if you really spend some time with that forum. Um, but I think there's, like, you know, but I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think that that kind of, what you're talking about, that kind of, like, level of taste and that diversity of taste and that just kind of belief that there's, like, has is almost, like, an infinite amount of, like, amazing music that's been made that's still out there to be discovered... I think that's simultaneously, it's cool that it's been mainstreamed and become kind of the basis of for a lot of people when they listen. But then it's also, I think the people who are the most, I mean, obviously I'm not someone who has done a great job of sticking to my guns when it comes to collecting. But, you know, there are people who still are out there and still believe in doing things the old fashioned way. And I think those people can continue to be successful at it. Like people are still finding new records that no one's heard before. And in some cases, I feel like totally. they're shaking the barrel. But in other cases, people turn things up that are amazing that, you know, when by all rights, those things should have been found decades ago. So it's like, it's not, you know, the show goes on or something.
1: I appreciate all you, uh, all, you know, you going so deep and breaking down um, all the nuances. For our, our listeners' benefit, we know you're still, uh, you know, doing a lot of writing in various places like GQ, can you, can you give us a sense for where we can find your uh, sports and cultural analysis, especially around the NBA playoffs? I imagine, are you prepping a few more pieces before the finals are over?
4: Yeah, I just, my my main, you know, because I have a day job now, I don't really write as much as I'd like to sometimes, but I, yeah, I have a regular column with GQ. I do, you know, every two to three times a month, more during the playoffs. It's a bit a weird playoff. I feel like it's been low and kind of big epic storylines. There's been some good games, but it hasn't really been the most interesting to write about but yeah I'll get a few more in there before we're done it, it, it's also I think that we're, tap- we're taping this while a playoff game is on
1: <laughs> I know sorry about that I should have thought ahead
3: peace <laughs> yeah. right. uh, feeling like Zuckerberg and this motherfucker uh, mink fur and this motherfucker uh, everybody like to pop that shit till I'm here now they don't say a word in this motherfucker got my hundred dog cape on yeah uh, Hit my nigga face, mob I told that nigga better hunt the racks when I drop. Niggas running like a snake pump. Life got real, son, nigga got realer. Sippin' on Earl Gray, sittin' in the villa, uh, like a killer. Got me on the run, I'm the one. Hit the city and I feel like Godzilla. Yeah, ooh, fuck a piece, son. Uh, I've been playing cool since knee high. Uh, this is why you shouldn't poke a beehive. Nah, uh, nigga sittin' in a G5. Feelin' like a god. I feel like a, God. I feel like, a God. I feel like a I feel like a God. Hey, I do that. Uh, yeah, I And do
1: that. we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all get into something Cole Beasley style, and then get told you're a distraction by the skip Baylesses of the world. Get back to watching game film. That's ridiculous. Life is just work. And the things that distract us from work. So, uh, right now, we're gonna end the show by telling you what's been distracting us this week. Adam, lead us off. What what, you know? Distract us. What? What's it going on in your world?
2: Well, this will sound like a paid plug, and I promise you, it's not. But uh, every once in a while, you find a really cool company, and you like what they're doing, and. You give money to them for no other reason than that. There's a, a service that's available in a handful of areas in the country called Imperfect Produce. So basically all the damaged um, goods that you wouldn't see in the grocery store um, with physical imperfections, uh, still great vegetables, They there's a company called Imperfect Produce that will send them to your door. So my carrots are twisted or cut in half. Um, the eggplant that I got was scratched and bruised. Um, but it's a really cool company. They're obviously really big into sustainability. Um, you can do weekly subscriptions, which I'm doing now. So I have a box of six pounds of vegetables that comes to my door, uh, every Thursday night. Uh, and they also give a ton of food away to homeless people, uh, and other places that are in need. So, I guess it's a a shout-out, but also a a distraction to Imperfect Produce. Not a client, no vested interest, just a fan.
1: Nice, man. Nice. Gareth, uh, distract us, my friend.
0: Uh, Guys, I want to talk about something that's a major passion of mine. You could almost call it a hobby. Record collecting. (laughs) 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 I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the pod before, but... uh, I started doing it about 20 years ago. I love it, I like hanging out record stores. Um, Yeah, I just, I really recommend it. If you like music and want to elevate your musical game away from an Alexa into the level of ritual record store. No, it's, um, I actually, I did the math on this. I have in my distractions, besides the countless times I've recommended an album or musicians, everything from standing on the corner, Shout out to Geo at Good Records, to Neil Young's Tonight's the Night, uh, various things like that. I have also used a distraction to say my distraction was, quote, hang out at record stores. (laughs) That was my distraction. Uh, Adam, when I wrote him a five-page essay on uh, buying records at Reddit for my distraction, so I think that'll... I'm gonna stick with the classic tonight. Say something about
2: records or my You never, you never sent that, by the way. I'm still are, looking let me, for that.
0: Uh, that's a classic Gareth move right there. <laughs> so, <laughs> here you go. Nice man. Nice. So
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with a distraction that's a little bit, a little bit dedicated to Gareth Hughes, but does not involve record collecting. There's a new podcast recommendation I can make called Gareth. Can you guess it? No. What do you got? It is unspooled. It is
0: with oh yeah yeah yeah. I listened to the first episode. <laughs> yeah, it is with Paul Shear
1: of uh, how did this get made? The league, uh, plenty of other stuff, the uh, films, uh, TV projects, uh, Human Giant that you, you you would know. Amy Nicholson, former host of the Canon, uh, and they they you know I, I know they did a couple Canon episodes with them together. It seems like they're launching a new show where they're gonna watch the greatest movies of all time and talk about them. I love Paul Shear, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, I I really enjoyed the canon when it was on. It kind of got derailed because Amy's co-host, <laughs> you know, who even knows? I'm not even going to get into it. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad she found a landing spot with someone that I think will be a good partner for her. I'm excited to listen to it. I like I like movie podcasts. I don't know why. I don't really watch movies anymore. Um, but as a former film critic, I I really enjoyed it. Um, and so, yeah. Excited to check it out. I can't wait till they do Thunderstruck with Kevin Durant.
2: No, Enough, yeah, so, enough of that reference already. So they're no reviewing
1: the top
0: 100 AFI films, and they started this week with Citizen Kane. And um, it was a cool way to listen because Paul Shear came at it from a novice. I don't think he had seen it, as I recall. And Amy Nicholson is really one of the brightest people to talk about films. And I'm with you, Brad. I... For whatever reason, when I started listening to podcasts, it was to listen to film podcasts. So now I listen to a lot of them as well. I often wonder if I had started listening to podcasts about macrame, would podcasts now just be like a macrame (laughs) thing
1: in my head? Um, Gareth, it did make me wonder if maybe he's moving. He's getting ready to move forward from how did it get made. Because that's been years in the making. I I don't want to say they're running out of movies, but... There's been a lot of like Ninja Surf Warriors from the 80s. Like, I, I, I almost. Brad, let me ask you
0: this. Have you ever wondered if your podcast has a shelf life? Yeah.
1: More than, more <laughs> than you guys know. I
0: think.
2: I, I Way think more Brad, than you guys know. <laughs> I think Brad has a certain number in his head. And one day he's just going to be like, well, guys, uh, according to the chart I put together when this started, we're out. <laughs> you know, I know
1: that number is one, and that is the the, the one listen on SoundCloud that I, it's mind-checking the feed works. And then I'm like, we're out. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, that's our show. We've got 13 more. <laughs> um, anyway, let's end with some shout-outs. I want to end. Shout-out to Nathaniel Friedman for joining the show. Great conversation. Great guy. Check out his work on GQ. Uh, and, and find him on Twitter he, he's always directing people to other things that he's dabbling in I want to end with a shout out to my daughters for being the best two kids on a four hour flight in history in front oh, of great. the worst two kids on a four hour flight in history I don't ever complain to parents about their kids but people behind us have a fucking plan don't pull out the iPad two hours into the flight And be like, maybe he wants to watch the iPad, the kid who's been having a tantrum and kicking my daughter's seat. I had my daughter, Matrix, jacked in from the moment we got in the airport, man. (laughs) Like, have a plan, stick to the plan. Uh, That's all I'm going to say. That was going to be my big distraction this week, but I didn't want to get too fired up, as you can tell. But my daughters, (laughs) Charlotte, Violet, uh, did not realize those rhymed. Ish until I said them out loud right back, back to back. Uh, love you guys. You were amazing on our trip. Gareth, uh, uh, hit us up with some shout outs.
2: Uh, I'm good this week. Adam, over to you. Uh, shout out to someone who has been a guest on this show, um, but is also I'm also a, a big fan of and have worked with uh, Peter King. His time at SI is done. It doesn't mean He's completely leaving, but the face of SI for so long, he just wrote his last post and will be moving on to other projects. So uh shout out, Peter, let us know if we can help promote what you're doing next to our 40,000 a week listeners. I'm just going to keep throwing that out there and until it becomes true. Uh, <laughs> but such a great guy, great writer. Uh, I know all of us, in some way, I became involved in sports because of Peter's work, uh, since none of us are athletes. So uh, thanks a lot, Peter. And as usual, shout out to my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Lil Swanee, Meech, Ron Mac, and my other cousin, Ron.
1: Uh, By the way, Peter King, episode 21 of Just Not Sports for the loyal listeners, going back through the catalog and in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers.
2: Stay booty. Stay
1: booty.
0: Stay booty. booty.